Uh, turn your Bibles to the book of Job, chapter 2. Job, chapter 2. Um, we're going to finish the end. We're going to really cover a lot of ground this morning. We'll, we'll cover the last few verses of Job, chapter 2, where we're introduced to three of the four friends of Job. Friends, I use that in quotation marks. Uh, friends of Job that show up. Uh, and then we'll work our way all through chapter 3. Uh, this is uh, chapter 3, I, I would argue, uh, is the darkest chapter and what really is the darkest book in the whole Bible. Um, it is very, very difficult stuff to work through. Uh, to see this man whom God has said is the most righteous man on the planet to be brought to these depths. Uh, and the expressions of his heart are real. The expressions of his heart are uh, incredibly raw, uh, painful. And, and honestly, if you're here this morning and you've experienced deep, extended seasons of grief, uh, I think you, you will find yourself in them quite easily. Or if you've had the occasion to sit with others or be with others in the presence of others who, who if I could say it this way, have the courage to be vulnerable, then you, you've probably heard some of these things. Um, I, I believe, 47 years old and having been raised in church my whole life, that largely church is not a safe place to grieve. Uh, and what I mean by that is we tend to relate to grief as a season you're supposed to get through and get over. Um, we, we tend to quickly run to passages of truth and treat them like two Tylenol you're supposed to take and feel better. Right? So, well, God's working all things for his good. Right? So kind of like, what's your problem? Can't you see the good? Um, or cast all your cares on him because he cares for you. Why in the world are you anxious? Be anxious for nothing, right? Um, Paul said to be content in everything. And, and we can tend to treat lightly, and I say this, um, to try to just help our hearts. In those moments, I think we're using those passages in ways that they weren't really intended lots of times. They are intended as comfort and truth, but not as nightclubs or billy clubs for the grieving. And in lots of times in those moments, dealing with people that are grieving deeply or over a long period of time, instead of us not breaking bruised reeds, we snap them. And instead of us not snuffing out a smoldering week, we snuff it out. And so, so much of Job and the, law, the length of Job uh, is intended to help us understand grief in a biblical way and to help us to understand how very real believers, there's no question that Job is a godly man, how even very godly people will wrestle through the depths and the travail of grief. And so I'm going to read the whole section, but just to give you a heads up what, what's going to happen. Um, chapters 1 and 2, we saw Job's grief. Chapter 3 is the first time we really hear from him yes we've heard the first initial expressions of his heart the initial expression of god gives god takes away blessed be the name of the lord um, i trust god i, I love him uh, we heard those but we've seen now everything the totality of what's happened and now chapter three we're going to hear from him and so it's interesting because the narrator pauses to introduce these friends to us and we're really not given a lot of information about them as the sermons of the weeks ahead we'll look a little bit more at these guys just so we understand them we're given enough information to point to the length and the nature of Job's trial. But we're also introduced these friends for very specific reasons. It's so that we can identify with them. And so what I mean by that is we want to hear what they hear. 
Uh, so this would be like, you will find yourself in the text this morning, I am convinced, and probably in a spectrum, right? Some of you, like a Venn diagram almost, actually. Some of you will really identify with Job in some ways. And some of you will really identify with the friends in some ways of hearing just kind of the ugly rawness come out of somebody. And it's like, what do I do with this nastiness, right? What do I do with this, this explosion? Um, and so the narrator's using them to, to cause us as a reader, as an audience, to ask, how would I process this that I'm hearing from Job? Sorry, I don't know. I'm sure it has to do with the fact that I'm sitting down. But um, how would I process through hearing a friend say these things? Or, and, and if you're that person, how do I think through what I'm saying? So that's what he's calling us to do. So let's read it uh, here. So follow along your Bibles, uh, Job chapter 2. I'm going to start in verse 11, and I'm going to read down through the entirety of chapter 3 in its uncomfortability so we get the full flow. It's a lengthy passage, so hang in there. Most people check out after about five verses. Fight against that. Don't do that. Now when Job's three friends heard of all this evil that had come upon him, they came each from his own place, Eliphaz the Temanite, Bildad the Shuhite, and Zophar the Namanthite. They made an appointment together to come to show him sympathy and comfort him. And when they saw him from a distance, they did not recognize him. They raised their voices and they wept and they tore their robes. They sprinkled dust on their heads toward heaven. And they sat with him on the ground seven days and seven nights, and no one spoke a word to him, for they saw that his suffering was very great. After this, Job opened his mouth and cursed the day of his birth. Job said, Let the day perish on which I was born, and the night that said, A man is conceived. Let that day be darkness. May God above not seek it, nor light shine upon it. Let gloom and deep darkness claim it. Let clouds dwell upon it. Let the blackness of the day terrify it. That night, let thick darkness seize it. Let it not rejoice among the days of the year. Let it not come into the number of the months. Behold, let that night be barren. Let no joyful cry enter it. Let those cursed who curse the day, who are ready to rouse up Leviathan. Let the stars of its dawn be dark. Let it hope for light but have none, nor see the eyelids of the morning, because it did not shut the doors of my mother's womb, nor hide trouble from my eyes. Why did I not die at birth, come out from the womb and expire? Why did the knees receive me, or why the breasts that I should nurse? For then I would have laid down and been quiet. I would have slept, then I would have been at rest with kings and counselors of the earth who rebuilt ruins for themselves, or with princes who had gold who filled their houses with silver? Or why was I not as a hidden stillborn child, as infants who never see the light? There the wicked cease from troubling, and there the weary are at rest. There the prisoners are at ease together. They hear not the voice of the taskmaster. The small and the great are there, and the slave is free from his master. Why is light given to him who is in misery and life to the bitter in soul? who long for death, but it comes not, and dig for it more than for hidden treasures, who rejoice exceedingly and are glad when they find the grave. Why is light given to a man whose way is hidden, whom God has hedged in? For my sighing comes instead of my bread, and my groanings are poured out like water. For the thing that I fear comes upon me, and what I dread befalls me. I am not at ease, nor am I quiet. I have no rest, but trouble comes. 
Brene Brown is a prominent sociologist and researcher. And a number of years ago, she's become very, very popular. A number of years ago, she started doing study into people that are deeply connected with others. Uh, and she's no believer. She's one of those. She's a secular scientist. But she's had some tremendous insights that we can learn from and we can glean from. One of the things that she actually says is that we're all wired. We're created for deep connection with others. We want to be deeply connected to people. And we would affirm that, that what she's identifying is exactly actually what the Bible teaches us in Genesis 3. Uh, it wasn't good until God made community, until there was a husband and a wife. And, and God has always designed us to be part of a community. And uh, the church is a community. The covenant of God's people is a community. We celebrate communion as community. So God is wider for this. And not just shallow friendships or um, niceties or we like to hang out together, but deep connection. And what she's discovered in research is very, 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 very few people ever have deep connection. That the majority of people live in a world where they are constantly afraid. Afraid of being discovered that they're actually not that smart. That they're not that beautiful. That they're not that athletic. That they're not that talented. They're not that gifted. They're not that personable. They're not that worthy. Most of us live with intense insecurities and fears that if they just find out who I really am, they actually wouldn't want to really be near me or know me. And so what we do then is we mask our vulnerabilities and we hide them. And we hide them in all kinds of ways, in all kinds of senses, but one of the things that then results is we live with this constant fear, and even if somebody thinks that they're our friend, we don't feel very connected to them. Because we know there's this whole hidden part of us that if I was really honest about who I am, maybe they'll reject me. And so we lose what we're actually hardwired to have, and that's deep connection. Now, what what Brene Brown never gets to is the solution for that, and she actually calls it shame. The solution for that shame is Christ. And she never gets there. And so she advocates things like finding people where you can be very vulnerable with. She cites research that the happiest people are actually the people that are the most vulnerable who understand this, and tell me this doesn't sound like the Apostle Paul, who realize the brokenness of my life is not what makes me ugly, but actually what makes me beautiful. And it's out of those honest vulnerabilities that we can have real deep connection with other people. Now, so how does that affect this? Well, I absolutely believe it's part of what fuels why we as a society and as church do such a terrible job ministering to the really hurting. We squash, crush, deny our own vulnerabilities, and there's no one more vulnerable than someone who's in deep pain. They can't seem to talk without crying. They can't seem to speak without complaining. They can't seem to put two words together. They seem stuck in life. They can't move forward. Ambition is gone. Joy is gone. Frankly, sleep is gone. Appetite is gone. They are very difficult people to be with. And when we're living in a way that says, I have to hide my vulnerabilities, sitting with someone so raw and so vulnerable is frankly uncomfortable and inconvenient. What might be some indications that that might be the approach of your heart or my heart? Have you ever looked at someone and say, well, they should just be over that now? Why can't they move on? Why are they so stuck in that? Why is this a hang-up to them? Why does everything seem to come back to that moment of sorrow? Why are they so bothered? They just need to get moving. Can't they be happy? Now, I want to be clear. 
Even in our grief, we can sin. And there's lots of truth that we need to function by facts and not feelings. And that we must never stop serving, loving God, worshiping Him, seeking to care for others. But the impact of grief is deep and profound. And it's so significant that God devotes an entire book of the Bible to it, and it's the first book ever written. And in particular, how we as Christians wrestle through puzzling pain. Uh, Darren said that one of his prayers the other week, and I was like, oh my word, well, I've been calling it inexplicable. That's so much harder to remember. Puzzling pain. Pain that doesn't make sense. It's so significant and difficult, and that's exactly what we have here. And so these friends show up, and, and they do exactly what they shouldn't do. They don't really listen well to Job in his speech. But I want to challenge us this morning. What we need to learn from this part of Job is listen to the suffering. It loves them, and it helps us both. The truth is, when you sit with someone and you listen to them, they feel loved, and we'll talk about that more in just a moment. But, but let's first of all unpack some of the detail of this moment that's important to us. And first of all, what the narrator does is he points out the length and kind of the loneliness of Job's pain. We're told about these guys, and, and it's funny when you read commentaries. They're like, we, we know where these regions generally are, and they try to track them through lineage. And, and there's pages written about these guys to all sum up this. Uh, about all we know is they're really wealthy and they're Job's friends and they come from three different distant areas. That's what we know. That's, that's what we got. But it does point to something interesting and it points to the length of Job's pain and Job's suffering. This is not momentary pain. This is not immediate pain, but it's lengthy pain. You could read through the entire book of Job in less than two hours. Uh, your average reader in about an hour and 45 minutes. If you're a faster reader, maybe a little quicker. Even if you're a slower reader, you'll get it done in about two hours. But that doesn't give us a full appreciation for how long things have been going on here for Job. And actually, it's been a very long time already. In chapter 7, verse 3, you can see there he references months of emptiness and nights of misery. The fact that the narrator gives us these three guys from three different areas points us to a very important truth. There, what was required was news to get to them of what Job had experienced to each of them. These three guys then had to coordinate their travel plans so that they could all arrive together. They then had to make the travel, which was of some distance, to get to where Job is at. All of this time, Job is sitting on the ash heap by himself. This has already been going on at frankly, conservative estimate for months before these guys ever show up. It's not the next day. It's not the next week. It's months he's been experiencing this. On top of that, in chapter 30, verses 9 through 11, he points to the fact that as the shepherds and the herdsmen would go in and out of his nearby city, they would pass by Job because he's sitting out here in the trash heap, the ash heap out of, out of town. And it's been so long, first of all, that they've been able to go in and go out. And what these guys would do is they'd actually go out and they would be gone for months at a time. Uh, the traveling herdsmen, somewhat nomadic to feed the sheep, take them for pasture pasture. Then they bring them back in for various seasons. And it's been so long that these guys have been able to go in and go out and they've actually made up songs about Job. They mock him. They sing them. He hears them singing as they go by about him he indicates it in cha chapter 30 again verse 16 my soul is poured out within me days of affliction have taken hold of me and the way this is structured in the hebrew it indicates a, again an extended period of time verse 28 i go about darkened but not by the sun i stand up in the assembly and cry for help it's been so long and nobody came to him at some point job actually went to the gathering place and asked them for help and still no one helped him 
just imagine this guy. I mean, here I scootered up and hobbled onto this chair. You can only imagine Job covered in boils, hobbling, making his way alone into the assembly to ask for help, only to receive rejection. Time plus pain, spiritually, is intended to produce endurance in us. Time plus pain. You need both. You got no time, you don't have to learn endurance. You got no pain, you don't have to learn endurance. You need both. Well, we know that Job is already a godly man, so we know he's a man with spiritual endurance. When Job finally speaks in chapter 3, he's hit his limit. The endurance is gone. The grief has overwhelmed him. And I want to be very clear here. God doesn't, so neither should you, judge Job for being there. Have you ever judged someone who seems like their grief has overwhelmed them? The narrator's preparing us to ask ourselves the question, am I more like one of these friends? Or am I more like a good shepherd of someone's soul? It's terrifying because I know that my own heart has been there with people. Job is in survival mode. And so it's not just the length of the pain, though. There is the loneliness of the pain. We've already seen some of this um, with the fact that he goes to the assembly and asks for help and nobody comes. We've already seen some of the loneliness as he's sitting in the ash heap by himself. Um, The shepherds make fun of him. Uh, All these people that Job has served, the orphans, the widows, the people experiencing injustice, all these people he's loved and served, the other merchants he's done business with, nobody wants to come to him. All grief makes us feel alone. I'm going to say that again. All grief makes us feel alone. Take one of the most horrendous griefs that a, that a couple could experience, the loss of a child. In some ways, their grief is identical. It is the loss of parents for a child. But in other ways, the grief is very specific and lonely. Only she carried that baby for nine months. Only she nursed that baby. Only, only she knows the grief of a mother. Only he knew the hope and the thrill of the announcement of this child. Only he envisioned the future things he would do with this child. Only he thought of how he was going to be a good father. Only he, if it was a daughter, thought about walking her down the aisle. And so in some ways, the grief of the father is only his. And so even in the combined grief, there is still an aloneness and a loneliness to it. All grief makes a person feel alone. The loneliness of Job's grief is on full display for every one of us, and it's actually exaggerated by these three friends. They take so long to get there. When someone's hurting, I'm going to tell you two words that you need to remember. If you're taking notes, you need to write these down. Someone's hurting, someone's grieving. Are you ready? These are profound. These will be helpful. Here you go. Show up. Show up. We have... I delight in the fact that our church is multi-generational because I think generations can learn from generations. There's a generation in our church that gets that. The older generation understands. It's not just, I don't have to say this, I'm thankful. Maybe it's, maybe it's Southern hospitality. I don't know. But when someone dies, you show up. Show up. They get it. And everyone else is like, I don't know if I was that close to them. Show up. I don't know what I'll say. Show up. It's really awkward and uncomfortable. Show up. These guys don't show up. Now, eventually, it takes them a long time to get there. And when they get there, what do they do? Now, they do identify. They throw dust on their heads, and that's kind of a way of symbolizing, I grieve with you. And then they sit there for seven days. 
and say nothing. Now, these guys are not your stalwarts of godly comfort. So the best thing they ever do is that they sit silent. (laughs) But this is compounded pain. It's hard to imagine. This man has lost all ten of his children. His wife isn't there. No one has been there. No one's come to him. And you don't say a word? Grief is not the time for societal niceties. It's okay to weep with somebody, put your arm around them, and say, I got nothing to say, but I love you. But they say nothing. Now, later we're going to discover why. They sit for a week and they say nothing. And I'm going to say this, because they are preparing what confrontation they're going to communicate. They don't have words of comfort to speak because they didn't actually come necessarily with words of comfort. And this exaggerates the loneliness that Job is experiencing. He's only experiencing mockery. And I want you to know what this does in the heart of someone who's grieving deeply. It leads them to this question that they're already struggling with. Here it is. They're already asking, what is wrong with me? And when you leave someone alone in their grief, this is what you tell them. You are the problem. You don't mean to say that, right? You've never meant to say that. Some of you are sitting here right now and you feel a little twinge of conviction uh, by the present spirit. Others maybe just a feeling of guilt. You're like, I didn't mean to say that. It's really important for us to live in the reality of how we communicate with what we do and what we say or what we don't say. And so instead, what the narrator is encouraging us to do is to actually enter the pain of these folks. We need to listen to the suffering because it loves them, and it will actually help you both. It will help you and them. You need to weep with those that weep because it affirms that their pain is real. Social workers and counselors have often discovered because of the societal tendency to not be vulnerable and to squash our emotions. And I just want to say, when a person says, I'm just not a very emotional person, you really only have two options. And I, and I just want to be clear here. It's going to be kind of direct, but, but we got to go there, right? It's either you're a sociopath or you have spent a lifetime refusing to be vulnerable. And the way you've learned to do that is by numbing yourself to your own emotional reality, and God made you to be emotional. He's emotional. He cries, he's angry, he shouts with joy. And so what it incapacitates you is to be able to be empathized with other people that are suffering. And then the Bible commands us, in the context of community, to weep with those that weep. That requires deep connection. And so what they've discovered, what a counselor discovers, is you'll talk to a person. I've, I've personally had this experience. I've been shocked by this at times, where I'm talking to someone who seems very numb about what they're telling me because they've just had to squash the real impact of what they've experienced. And I've talked to, to, had a few occasions where I've talked to folks, and they've experienced some extreme suffering of some kind. And, and, and it really runs the gamut uh, of everything from loss financially to to relationally, to abuse, and just uh, to things, theft, fire, um, and, they've just ta- and they're just like numb. And I've gotten emotional over what they've experienced. And I've started to cry. And it was like the moment I started to cry, the floodgates went open. And they started weeping. 
And it was almost surprising to them. And do you know what had happened in that moment? Weeping with those that are sorrowing, it communicated, you know what, your pain is real. Like, this is profound. That's really deep hurt. When you weep with those that weep, it affirms that their pain is real, while loneliness tells them all the time, your pain isn't real enough for me to enter into. Weeping with those that weep affirms that they're not crazy for hurting. Meanwhile, other people will be telling me you should just be getting over this. It affirms that you're okay with their vulnerability and will develop deep connection with them. It affirms that the broken areas of their life are not ugly. You don't need to put them away, shut them away, or ignore them. It's okay. As a matter of fact, we know from Paul that it's out of the broken and weak areas of our life that we can see Christ most clearly. (laughs) And so we want to spend time with broken people because you want to see Jesus? You can see him through the cracks and the breaks of a believer's life. It affirms that you love them, and it affirms that you hurt with them. Come and weep with those that weep. Now, I say all that to say then you've got to prepare yourself for what you're about to hear, right? So, so it's a little bit like buckle up, because now we want to turn to Job in this chapter 3. And I think the best way we can structure our way through it is to actually look at it as three meditations on grief. And we can actually structure the, t- the chapter this way. Uh, grief consumes his joy. He's going to unpack that. Grief is a prison. Uh, he's going to unpack that. And then grief is beyond my control. And each of these have their own significant impacts in Job's life and in the, life of a grie- in, in the lives of the grieving. Job is a man who refuses to curse God. Job is a man who believes that God has given him all things and he's taken them away. God has the right to do that. Job is a man who loves God. We know that from God's own words that that Job loves God. This whole book is about this this clash between Satan and God in the sense of this question, is the love that God has for people real and is the love of God's people real for him? Or is the love fake? Is the love uh, only what it gets them? That's the whole argument. God is not bringing these things into Job's life to prove to Job or to God that Job really loves him. God already knows he does. This is not a test of Job's love by God. This is a proving that the love that God has for his people is real and the love that we as his people have for him is real. We don't love him for what he gives us here. We love him for who he is. Now, we know that from chapters 1 and 2. Job knows none of that. And so Job is a man who's looked at his life, and up until this point, he absolutely has believed that God has loved him. He looked at the only things that you and I tend to look at, the blessings of life. That's how I know God loves me. He's given me this, that, and the other. He's given me health, or he's given me safety, or he's given me relationships, he's given me friendships, he's given me a job, he's given me an intellect, he's given me peace, he's given me rest, all kinds of things. Most people, you ask them, how do you know God loves you? That's what they're going to say. You even ask Christians, they will run to the New Testament. God proves his love for us. And while we're yet sinners, Christ died for us. Job is pre-Christ. So Job has a concept of sin and repentance and confession and sacrifice. Absolutely. He has a sense that God is the one who has to take care of my sins. But Job is in a season of profound, puzzling pain. And he he doesn't think God loves him anymore. This is a heart of grief that says, God doesn't he must not love me do you ever struggle feeling like god loves you you ever wrestle with that idea i sure do 
Certainly have. I'm not ashamed to admit that. I think it's actually helpful for you to hear pastors admit that. And I will tell you that grief works on that like nothing else. Sorrow and deep and profound loss and pain, just pluck at it. And so Job's heart is pouring this out all along the way. So let me read back verses 1 through 2, because now you kind of have a sense of what they're going to be. And it's going to be about how grief consumes my joy. Uh, you actually have the shortest, you know, the shortest verse in the New Testament, Jesus wept. Shortest verse in the Old Testament is there, verse 2, Job said, Let the day perish on which I was born, and the night that said, A man is conceived. Job is going all the way back to two events. The, the, when he's conceived, and the indication that he gives here is probably referencing when Job's dad found out from Job's mom that she was going to have Job. And that story has probably been rehearsed to Job, just the way he's referencing and talking about it. And he had had that experience ten times in his own life. He knew what that moment was like. I remember vividly at Rob and Trisha's Phipps house, I was redoing the cabinet that became our TV cabinet. We found it at some antique store in Door County. My wife and I were beginning to be afraid that, that we were going to wrestle long-term with infertility. I'd been praying for a child. Uh, God had not been answering those prayers. I had some close friends praying. And, and my wife called me and said, I need you to come back to the apartment really quick. There's something happened. I said, oh, okay. So I hop in my car, drive back to the apartment, and I walk in, and she handed me the pregnancy test. That was a cool moment. It was a great moment. And I remember each time with each of our children, she told us that we were expecting. And so Job is thinking back in his life. So what this tells us is Job in these months of grief has not just considered the now, but Job has attempted, listen now, Job has attempted to do what good biblical counselors will tell you to do. Look back in your life and look for moments you've seen God at work. And what Job has done is he's looked back through his life He's gone all the way back to that day. And you know what he said? It doesn't matter. It's not enough to deal with my pain. And so this is what he's going back to. Let the day perish on which I was born, the night that said a man was conceived. Let that day be darkness. He gets real poetic here. He's imagining it, this bright, beautiful sunrise day. Let that day be a darkness. May God above not seek it, nor light shine upon it. Let gloom and deep darkness claim it. Let clouds dwell upon it. Let the blackness of the day terrify it. That night, let thick darkness seize it. Let it not rejoice among the days of the year. That's an interesting Hebrew poetic phrase. It would be like, let the day of my conception and the day of my birth be like February 30th. You're like, there is no February 30th. Exactly. It'd be like if, if my birthday is August 26th, right? It'd be like me saying, let that day be erased so we go from August 25th to August 27th. We skip the 26th. Like, that's some, like that's some deep anger. That's some deep hurt. I don't even want, no, that day should be excised from the world's calendar. Let it not come into the number of the months. Behold, let that night be barren. Let no joyful cry enter it. He's talking about that first cry of the baby, the first, the first cry of rejoicing, when Job's mom told Job's dad, I'm pregnant, and he went, woohoo! Job says, let it not even happen. Now that's interesting because when we see Job during the patriarchal times, I just want, to, want you, your mind, your holy imagination to go with me here for a moment. Job lives hundreds of years, and so does everybody during this time there's every real chance Job's parents are still alive when Job's writing this. So one guess is 
that Job feels like his grief has become so profound it's even robbed his parents of the joy of his life. The loss of ten grandchildren, the loss of everything, the loss of who he is, it'd be better for his parents that he had never been born. That's one guess. That's one possibility. Regardless whether they're alive and and there are participants in this, the fact is Job sees the problem as him. Let those curse it who curse the day who who are ready to rouse up Leviathan. Let the stars of its dawn be dark. Let it hope for light but have none. Nor see the eyelids of the morning because it did not shut the doors of my mother's womb nor hide trouble from my eyes. It's amazing the depth to which Job is poetically communicating his desire for this to be gone. But he points to something very interesting in there. He points to Leviathan. And Leviathan is going to show up later in the book. And so it's the first occasion. It's important for us to understand why Job is referencing Leviathan. Leviathan was almost, and it was a real creature, but it almost had mythological status. It was a massive sea monster. Now, any land animal can be caught and killed. You can strategize with a group of other men to catch and kill it. But if you fast forward, even as late as the turn of our century, when we're doing whale hunting, our best method was get a ship next to them, throw harpoons into them that are tied to a little boat, and hang on for dear life. And like people are constantly getting killed by whales. So this is a massive sea creature. You can't lie and wait for it. You can't trap it. It can dive deep and drown. Like there's no control of it. So Leviathan had become an imagery of of destructive chaos you can't predict when it shows up it eats whatever it wants to eat and everything it wants to eat it consumes everything so job has been thinking and job has begun to say my life is like leviathan grief is like leviathan and what it's consumed is any moment of joy that my life has ever had everything has been eaten up by this There's nothing I can point to in my life at all that anyone has been benefited from or been blessed by. His loneliness and the length of his pain has convinced him that no one has at any time been brought joy by his life, not even his parents by his birth. Job feels like he is only a burden. This is the natural result of someone in deep grief who has no one to weep with them. Where are all these people that Job has helped? Where are all these people that have benefited from his justice and his zeal? Where are all these impoverished people that he's raised up out of poverty with his wealth? Where are these strangers that he actually has tracked down and helped? Where are his friends? And when they come, they don't have anything to say to him. For a week. For a week. Job waits for a week in his friend's presence for them to say something that shows compassion and care. They got nothing. Deep grief is like a powerful monster that consumes all of our joy. Deep grief can lead a person to feel like their life is no help or joy to anyone ever. Deep grief can erase the good memories so that instead of thinking, 
It is better to have loved and lost. They think it is better, actually, that they'd never loved at all because then their pain would not be so terrible. Midas is the fabled king who everything he touched turned to gold. Job feels like he is the opposite of Midas. Everything he touches turns to sorrow. Deep grief makes people think that they are the problem. It's Job's birth that he curses, not his wife, not his children, not the Chaldeans, not the Sabaeans, and not God. The problem of his grief is him, even though he knows he doesn't deserve this. This is so hard to hear from someone. How do we engage with that depth of grief with a person who is so convinced that they are the problem? Not yet. Let's move to grief as a prison. I told you, this is a super light and frothy chapter. You've got to have a moment of humor because it just hurts too bad. But, but Job, back with Job, verse 11, and the theme of this will be that grief is actually a prison to me. Why did I not die at birth, come out from the womb, and expire? Uh, and he gives actually the process of birth. And so you have this, this whole poetic imagery of the baby born, placed on his mother's lap, and then led to nursing. So, it's like a, so Job has gotten so specific about this. Why didn't you kill me then? Why didn't you kill me then? Why didn't you kill me then? It'd be like me looking back on my life and saying, uh, why didn't you let me die when I hit my head that time? Why didn't you let me die in that car wreck? Why didn't you let me die when, when I cut my hand at work and there was no one? Why didn't you let me? It's like you're thinking of everything. And Job's gone all the way back to his birth. Why did I not die at birth? Come out from the womb, expire. Why did the knees receive me? Why the breast that I should nurse? For then I would have laid down and been quiet. I would have slept, then I would have been at rest. With kings and counselors of the earth who rebuilt ruins for themselves, or with princes who had gold who filled their houses with silver. Or why was I not as a hidden stillborn child, as infants who never see the light? There the wicked cease from, num- from mumbling, troubling, and there the wicked weary are at rest. There the prisoners are at ease together. They hear not the voice of the taskmaster. The small and the great are there, and the silver slave is free from his master. Why is light given to him who is in misery, and life to the bitter in soul? who long for death, but it comes not, and dig for it more than for hidden treasures, who rejoice exceedingly are glad when they find the grave. Why is light given to a man whose way is hidden, whom God has hedged in? Verses 11 through 13 track the birth process, and then he contrasts two groups that never had to experience his grief. The first in verses 13 through 15 are those that are really wealthy and powerful. And then in verses 16 and 19, it's those that are poor and impoverished. And his point is this, whether you live a whole life that seems great or you live a whole life that seems like you're a prisoner, at least they all get to die. Why am I here? Now, then the last verses point to the unfairness of the puzzling pain. Why would God give life to someone that is going to experience this grief? The pain is not deserved. The grief is unearned, the sorrow is unjust, and it adds insult to injury. At least the dead get to rest and he doesn't. Is Job suicidal? Yes and no. Now Job's not the only guy in the Bible who wrestles with this. We know Judas commits suicide. That's as a reaction to his sin instead of repenting. We're all sinners. We should feel overwhelmed by the guilt of our sin. We violated God's law. We deserve wrath and judgment. We can't save ourselves. We can't fix ourselves. And when we're brought to that moment that we realize that we're sinners, we have two choices. Go on sinning in life, 
do whatever we're going to do in life and experience the wrath of God, or repent from our sin and run to Christ. Those are our options. Judas, overwhelmed by his guilt, refuses to confess, refuses to repent, and also doesn't even want to do life, and so he kills himself. The other answer is to repent of our sin. We see Peter do that. He confesses his sin. He repents of his sin. He's forgiven of his sin. He's restored. But even believers can wrestle with suicide, and believers can commit suicide. We're not Roman Catholics. We believe suicide is a sin. It is murder. We don't believe it's the unpardonable sin. It's not. Moses came to the point, he said, God, kill me. Elijah the prophet said, God, kill me. These aren't, this is not the cry of a frustrated parent. Take me now! This is not the exasperated, hyperbolic cry of a manager at work. I can't deal with these people. Take me now! These are genuine expressions of deep and profound grief and sorrow. For Moses, he's so overwhelmed by trying to lead ungrateful, stiff-necked goats in the wilderness, he's done with it. He's exhausted. He says, God, kill me. He doesn't say kill them. He says, kill me. Elijah's had wonderful spiritual success. There was no rain, then there's rain. He stood up against uh, the, the, the false priest. God sends fire. And what does he say? Kill me. Job is Job suicidal here? Yes, in the sense he wants to die desperately. No, in the sense he doesn't attempt to take his life. I will point you, though, to Job 6. He says this. Job 6, verse 8. Oh, that I might have my request and that God would fulfill my hope, that it would please God to crush me, that he would let loose his hand and cut me off. Why does Job pray that? He's asking God to kill him. He's asking God in Job 6, finish the job. Because Job feels trapped. If you look down in verse 23, he uses this phrasing to describe it. Why is light given to a man whose way is hidden, whom God has hedged in? Job feels like he's in a prison of grief. Famously, outside of Auschwitz and other concentration camps, they hung the sign, Arbeit macht frei means work will make you free. There was no work in these places. It was a lie. It was another lie intended to keep sheep quiet that they were about to slaughter. Convincing them that these were work camps, not death camps. And actually, it's a prison that was only going to literally consume them with fire and kill them. People in deep grief feel like they're a prisoner of their own life. Their joys have led to this pain, and their joy has been swallowed up by it. Their their very existence is a trap for them. Listen to the depth of the grief. Death seems to be a rest for them. How do we engage with that level of grief? One last one. Grief is beyond my control. We see it in verses 24 and 26. 24 through 26. My sighing comes instead of my bread. My groanings are poured out like water. For the thing that I fear comes upon me and what I dread befalls me. I am not at ease, nor am I quiet. I have no rest, but trouble comes. Job is an ambitious, capable, smart, wise, and courageous man. And we learn from the book of Job, a poet on top of that. He is your original Renaissance man. He's a warrior, a poet, 
a, a regional king almost, a wealthy, successful man, a father. You know, I, have you ever met a lazy person that's those things? It doesn't exist. Job had vision and drive, ambition and talent. Job had gifts and he put them to the test. Job would have known what it felt like to fail at certain things because we all know you learn more from your failures than your successes. Job, Job had, had built a successful empire that he used to further God's kingdom. He had ten children that loved each other and loved their dad. So Job was a man driven and capable. There are two types of people in this world, and, and really a spectrum. There are people we describe as having what we call an internal locus of control and an external locus of control. Let me, say, let me explain what that means. People with an external locus of control tend to live life feeling like life happens to them. Things have happened to me. I don't control these things. They just happen, right? Um, children almost universally have that, and you're trying to grow them. And, and actually part of the spectrum is, is actually called maturity. Um, you know, why, where's your homework, Johnny? My dog ate it. Even, we'll just assume that's true, right? Like we know most times, my dog ate it. Why did your dog eat your homework? Because I was on the floor of my bedroom when I did my homework. Why were you on the floor of your bedroom? Because I didn't want to sit at the table. Why do you want to sit at the table? Because the floor was more comfortable and my new puppy was there. And so your new puppy was on the floor with you. How did your puppy get your homework? Well, I ran to get a snack for the puppy and the puppy ate your homework. Yes. And so, Johnny, why don't you have your homework today? Because my dog ate it. And you and I are like, do your homework at the table where the dog can't get to it. Heavy revy. People with an external locus of control don't think that way. Things happen to me. They don't tend to take ownership and responsibility, largely. They don't tend to consider their mistakes and their errors. I'm where I'm at because of somebody else. They don't tend to grow from their mistakes. They don't tend to learn from them. They don't tend to self-evaluate very well. Now, here's the reality. All of us always have a tendency one way or the other. On the other end, you have internal locus of control. They tend to think I, I'm kind of the captain of my own fate. Um, if I put in, I get out. Um, I can learn from my, my mistakes. If something bad happened, maybe there's something different I could do. Now, we all know theologically when we zoom out from that, God is sovereign and he holds us responsible, right? I will say this. They never find successful people, whatever your vision of success is, whether you think of that as a successful business, successful marriage, successful relationship, successful parenting, successful life, whether, what, no matter your quantification of success, they never find successful people who have an external locus of control. Whatever areas of life where they tend to be getting things done, they have a strong internal locus of control. And as a Christian, it doesn't mean you're not trusting God, obviously. Look at Jeremiah. Was he successful? In God's economy, yes, he was, because he was faithful. And so when we quantify success biblically, yes, but he took the responsibility to do it. There's no way Job was the kind of guy who lived with a strong external locus of control. There's no way he got to where he got without figuring out, oh, this is where we need to move the flocks. This is where we need to move the goods. This is where we need to sell these to. This is how we need to do this. this is how we... He's a manager, a director, an administrator, a leader. So what happens when someone who's been operating out of a life that says, I can learn from my mistakes, I need to be ambitious, I need to be moving, we need to do this, we need to be planning, we need to do this, that all of this happens, boom. It's totally out of his control. There's nothing he could have done to avoid it. There's nothing he could have averted, and he's done nothing spiritually to deserve it. 
and he can't fix it either. What's Job supposed to do to fix this? He's got nothing to sell. He's got no one to lean on. He's got no one to trust. Job expresses exactly how people in deep grief feel. He feels trapped. And he feels like he can't control any of it. And he expresses it in a couple of significant ways. Let me go back to the verses. It says it this way. First of all, verse 24, for my sighing. This is a really unfortunate translation. I love the ESV, but it's really unfortunate because if you look at this Hebrew word throughout the rest of the Old Testament, it's not translated as sighing. It's actually translated frequently as the roar of a lion. What's that tell us? This is ugly cry. And then later when it says his groanings, it's like a deep wailing. This is what Job is saying. I'm so full of, full of grief, every time I go to talk, all that comes out of me is tears and weeping. One of the things I have learned is that in deep grief, sometimes you are tempted, you don't want to talk to anybody because you know when you go to talk to them, you're not even going to be able to get words out. <laughs> is all that comes out. Like a child that's suffered an acute injury, you know, like toddler, baby, something hurts them or something even shocks them. You know, they start sucking in air before they ever start crying. <gasps> and you know it's coming. Oh, it's coming. And then ultimately a scream comes out of them. That's what Job says this is like. Even when I try to talk, this is what comes out of me. It's like it controls me. Instead of eating, this is what comes out of me. Instead of being able to consume food, all I do is wail and weep. Instead of drinking water, all I do is cry. For the thing that I fear comes upon me. What I dread befalls me. I am not at ease, nor am I quiet. I have no rest, but trouble comes. He exaggerates this in the sense that it's like um, the emphasis is all the things that come to him. In verse 24, his sighing comes. His groanings pour out of him. Fear comes on him. Dread befalls him. Trouble comes. It's uncontrollable, loud grief. He feels abandoned, lost in a lengthy, with no light at the end of the tunnel kind of grief. Relentless aloneness without reprieve. Puzzling pain that is undeserved and makes no sense. Job doesn't know why God doesn't love him anymore. But he feels utterly and totally abandoned. And these three guys, they're the first people to come near Job to give any comfort or sympathy. And they actually say, that's why we're going to go. We're going to go, show up. You're like, okay, checkbox. We're going to bring comfort, which literally means we're going to help him. We know they don't because later Job's having to stitch together his own sackcloth. They don't feed him. They don't actually serve him. And we're going to give sympathy, which is empathy. We're going to weep with him. They don't do any of it. All they do is show up. You may need to listen to Job 3 this morning to understand your own grief. And if I could put it this way, the okayness of it. You may need to listen to know what giving sympathy and comfort actually look like and what it doesn't when we start unpacking what his friends say. You may need it this morning, though, for the closing word on hope that I'm about to give you. 
I just want to remind you, listen to the suffering. Listen to them. It loves them. And it will help you both. Because there is another Jewish man who will experience deep and unrelenting pain. Undeserved pain. We know that Job is not forsaken. We know that while he feels forsaken and not loved by God, the narrator has given us two chapters that tell us God loves Job deeply. At this point, at the end of chapter 3, I think if you have any compassion in you at all, your heart says, God, just shout at him now. Tell him now. It's part of the power of Job. It's because if if you've experienced deep grief, you know what it's like to feel like heaven is silent. And you're alone. And you begin to wonder, does he love me? And why doesn't he love me? And you already wrestle with all your own insecurities and fears. So you could come up with a whole grocery list of reasons for him not to love you. But it sure seemed like he loved you once. What have you done? And if you're like Job, you know you've done nothing to deserve this. The narrator has prepared us for this, that God does love him even though he feels forsaken. But this other Jewish man was forsaken. Mark's gospel leaves out six of the seven last sayings of Christ. Mark writes his gospel based upon what Peter tells him about the story and the events that Mark observed as the kind of the hanger-on of the crowd. And so it's interesting that Mark, the gospel author, chooses this one statement. The one statement as he's like almost, uh, he's, he is to Peter what Timothy is to Paul. Uh, Peter, who had done so much to deserve God's rejection, <laughs> who rejects Jesus, and yet he only experiences the pursuit and love of Christ. The one phrase that Mark gives is this of Jesus on the cross, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani, my God, my God, Why have you forsaken me? Jesus experiences the depth of sorrow of the betrayal of his friends, of the abandonment of others, ultimate loneliness in his grief, the the rejection of others, a a twisted, perverted authority structure where Pilate even admits, you haven't done anything to deserve this, but hey, I've got to please the crowd. My own wife cautioned me not to do this, but hey, I've got to please the crowd. The religious leaders turn on the whole crowd that said, Hosanna, Hosanna, now says, kill him, kill him, kill him. But the, the epitome the Mount Everest peak of his agony is in that moment. When he who knew no sin became sin for us. And somehow, that it just scrambles the eggs of our mind. The Father turns his face from the Son. It's the only time in the whole Bible, the gospel accounts of Jesus' life, where when he prayed, he did not call him Father. It's the only time. And God the Father could not look upon the Son because to look upon the Son was to see your Son and my Son in Job's sin. And Jesus is forsaken in that moment. 
Jesus was forsaken so that those of us who have repented of our sin, put our faith in Christ, have been saved. Jesus is forsaken so that the Father never forsakes us. He never turns his face from us. We rest in the love of the Father because Jesus experienced the wrath we deserve. We know truth that Job doesn't feel or know. We know that God from Job is not afraid to sit with you in your grief and sorrow. God is not frightened of Job's cries and his pain. God is not ashamed by your tears. God loves you. He is with you. He has not abandoned you. And despite how you or I feel, we must cling to that truth. The truth that there is hope in the darkness because Jesus took on every reason the Father could or ever would reject me or you so that we can know his love, his acceptance, and his care. Puzzling pain, deep and profound grief drives the one in it and the one listening to it back to the only hope we can ever have that in Christ we are never forsaken we are never unloved and we are never rejected we are called to listen to the suffering because it loves them but it helps us both and if you don't go to the suffering your heart does not get to experience the blessed hope of the reminder that God loves the deepest darkest areas of you you rob them but you rob your own heart people who are unwilling to be vulnerable and experience the vulnerability of others listen now they don't just lose deep connection with each other they lose deeper connection with god and so i say to us go sit serve and listen <laughs> that's what you need to do go sit serve and listen and to the grieving receive weep and speak and don't be afraid to now that's going to be hard to wrap our minds around because we're going to see how really rotten friends respond to this and we're going to see if i'm going to let me just i'll be this direct how really rotten church responds to this, right? How people who believe, these guys are believers, they've got a theology. We don't want to be them. But we do want to enter into the deep and profound grief of the others and be reminded that your deep grief actually doesn't shout that God doesn't love you because he forsook one so that he may never forsake you.